And we are in a series where we're going through the book of Philippians. It's uh, mostly a positive book, but this week Paul gets kind of harsh and offensive. He's actually a little negative, and that's about as negative as, as he's going to get throughout the whole letter. And you're going to hear what I'm talking about, but let's go ahead and read it. We'll start at Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Jesus, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray again here before we go any further. Father, now do your word in us. Uh, let us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of it. We just ask that your spirit would move now and speak to us in this time and that you would show us where we place our confidence falsely and how it is that we can truly root our confidence in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I know I'm being repetitive. He said multiple times so far through this letter to so far through this letter to rejoice in the Lord in some form or another. Uh, a few weeks ago in Mark's message, he ended by saying, Even though I am being poured out suffering as a drink offering on the altar of the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you. So you too should, re, uh, should be glad and rejoice with me. We're going to read, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And last week, welcome Epaphroditus in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. But now he's saying, I know I probably said rejoice in some form or another quite a few times in this letter, but it's important. It's a safeguard. Joy is a big deal. It's not a shallow thing. The act of rejoicing is not some mere expression of a fleeting emotion that we feel when something goes our way. Rejoice in the Lord, yay! You know, just that's... 
That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's, it's a discipline. It's, it's a constant battle, a way of life. Paul is willing to use valuable paper and ink real estate, which they didn't have much of, to tell us to rejoice multiple times because there is actually danger for us when we don't. When we place our confidence in something else, that's what happens. Rejoicing allows us to keep our confidence in Him. One commentary said, When believers rejoice in the Lord, they are strengthened to stand firm even in the midst of sacrifice and sorrow. And that's a theme we've seen here. What do we know about these Philippians? We know that they were very close to Paul's heart. We know that they were, they were kind of a stellar church in what they were doing. We know that they supported Paul financially. They supported um, other churches financially, even though they themselves were doing that out of their own poverty. Somehow they were doing that. There's, there's this, a lot to say about this church. But we also know that they were beginning to undergo some trials, some persecution that was in keeping with the kinds of things Paul experienced when he first went to Philippi, when he was beaten and thrown in prison. And they're, they're starting to get a taste of that. And so whenever you suffer, there's a test going on. It's a t- Where am I really rooting my confidence? Is this really worth it? Is it really all that it's cracked up to be? And in particular, we're asking, does God love me? If he's allowing this to happen to me, does it mean that he loves me? Or am I not performing well enough? Am I not going to church enough, reading my Bible enough, praying enough, just saying no enough in some way or another, being religious enough? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered if the reason you're going through what you're going through is because God has sort of forsaken you or abandoned you or he's somehow mad at you and you've got to kind of do more to to earn his good graces? Now, what's wrong with that? Why is that dangerous? It's a danger for us because it means we're losing confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ and actually discrediting his sacrifice and his grace. We begin to place our confidence instead in our own good works and legalistic righteousness. Paul is urgently impressing upon his readers the importance of rejoicing in the Lord so that their confidence is not shaken. You might say it like this, that that which is of our greatest worth to us is where we root our joy. And that which we rejoice in the most, where we root our joy, is our greatest source of our confidence. So by maintaining a sense of rejoicing or joy, reminding ourselves of the reason for joy, we don't lose that sense of worth. We don't lose that confidence. What is confidence? I, saw, I caught myself kind of puzzling over that word this week. As I was thinking about how to start this message out, I found myself pondering the word confidence. We generally think of confidence as a good thing, and it generally is a good thing. We want our kids to have a kind of self-confidence. We want to feel a sense of confidence that our big decisions are the right decisions, right? It's a kind of a buzzword today in our pop psychology culture. We want you to just have a lot of self-esteem and self-worth and self-confidence. We want you to believe in yourself and have the confidence to go and obtain all your dreams. And if anyone has enough confidence, anyone can obtain and achieve their dreams, according to Frozen. And every other Disney movie out there. It's 
It's kind of my stereotype. I like to pick on Disney, even though I like Disney. I do. Um, what is our greatest source of confidence? I looked up the word, and according to Google, which I think was quoting Merriam-Webster's dictionary, but I'm not sure, a couple of points came up. The feeling or belief that one can rely on someone or something. Firm trust. That's a kind of confidence. To put confidence in someone or something. And a feeling of self-assurance arising from one's appreciation of one's own abilities or qualities. Let me say that again. A feeling of self-assurance arising from one's appreciation of one's own abilities or qualities. Now, this isn't such a bad thing, but it can be. Uh, the thing about confidence is that it's always going somewhere. It's always getting to something. It's getting into the right school, getting into someone's good graces. It's always about movement, moving from less popular to more popular, moving from lesser financial wealth to greater financial wealth, moving to a position of greater regard, to be known as one who is good at my craft or proficient in my trade. And it always asks the question, am I good enough to have that, to be that, or to get there, to achieve this? So when we ask ourselves the question of confidence, there is usually a kind of portfolio or a resume in mind, right? What do these, you know, what do I base my confidence on? Why should someone let you in the door? Why should the bank give you that loan? Why should this employer offer you that job? Why should the kid down the street be your friend? Well, let's start thinking about it. Where do I root my confidence that I could actually get through that door? What's it based on? I've got a list, I've got a resume, I've got a portfolio. You're going to point to something, a toy that makes you cooler, a portfolio that shows that you're wiser, a, re a resume that says you're capable, and so on and so on. The truth is, we're always questioning ourselves though, aren't we? We're always asking the question, and this is why self-confidence and self-esteem are such a big deal today, because in such a competitive world, based on so high standards and achievement, how do I convince myself that I am enough? We're always sizing each other up, and we're sizing ourselves up too. Confidence. In this message, Paul says some pretty radical and even offensive stuff to get our attention in this area. He says, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives his resume, his portfolio, and it is quite impressive. And we'll get into that in a bit. But he goes on to say, But whatever were profits or gains for me, I now consider loss. I consider everything worth losing. I consider them garbage. And I want to make a note here on that word for garbage. The English translation is trying not to offend you. Because the Greek word is basically the word that means excrement. It's a word that is as close to profanity as you'll ever get in the Bible. It's somewhere between crap and the SH word. Okay? It's right in there. Paul was born into the right family, the right place. He was a scholar, achievements up the yin-yang. He was one of the elites, and he's saying, 
You know my doctorate degrees from UW? You know my Congressional Medal of Honor? You know my Pulitzer Prize? All crap. Why? Because it's all been surpassed by something far greater. The muddy backyard pond has been surpassed by the beach on the Oregon coast. The brightness of those stars has been surpassed by the brightness of the sun. Paul is saying, as good as my resume was, and it was better than yours, as good as my righteousness was, I now consider it worthless, garbage. I am trading up. What is loss? What is gain? What is valuable? What is garbage? These are the questions that we have to deal with. Don't trade true treasure for garbage. It says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Who is Paul talking about when he says the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh? In this case, it's a, re- it's a reference to what they call Judaizers. It's a reference to those who would say, it's all well and good that you have faith in Christ, but now if you want to be found righteous in God's eyes, you need to become Jewish as well. You need to be circumcised. You need to start practicing the law in building up your resume, your portfolio. The Philippian church were not native Jews. They were Gentiles. They were outsiders. And Paul is warning them against those who would try to shake up their confidence in the righteousness they had received through faith in Christ by saying they need to trade that in for a resume, a righteousness that's based on the law and good works. Now this is very ironic and satirical and offensive, what he actually says, because Paul is actually using the language that the Jewish people used to talk about outsiders and Gentiles and non-Jews. They were the ones who would call the Gentiles the dogs. And this was not a nice comment. This wasn't a way of saying man's best friend or fuzzy little cuddly creatures. For the Jews, the dog was the most miserable of creatures. It represented the ultimate uncleanness, everything unclean. They were filthy. They would eat almost anything, including refuse and human corpses and even their own vomit But now Paul says that the Judaizers are the dogs, not the Gentile Christians. They are now the true outsiders. Remember that word we talked about earlier? The word that usually means something like crap? It's the word skubalan. Skubalan, skubala, one of those. And, And while it was a slang for excrement, it was constructed out of two words, one that means to throw or to toss, And the other meaning dog. So skubalan literally means that which gets thrown to the dogs. Paul is saying, my resume, my self-made righteousness according to the law, my confidence in the flesh is all crap. That which gets thrown to the dogs. And since these Judaizers are swallowing that crap and trying to shove it down your throats, they are the dogs. 
They are evildoers because their emphasis on the works of the law turns into a self-reliance that obscures the need for salvation in Christ. They are harming Gentile Christians by misleading them away from confidence in faith in Jesus. It is those who serve God by His Spirit who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh who are truly the covenant people of God. Confidence in the flesh. What does that mean? Flesh has a number of uses in the Bible. It often just means the stuff that sticks to our bones. It often means mortal humanity as opposed to an immortal spirit or something along those lines. Oftentimes, Paul refers to it in a derogative way to talk about the deeds of one who is outside of Christ. Deeds of the flesh, sinful acts, and so on. But most often when Paul uses the word, he's talking about a humanity in which we root our confidence as opposed to rooting our confidence in God himself. And to really get a handle on why all of these terms fall under the word flesh, we have to go back to the Old Testament. In Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2, God creates woman and Adam says, At last this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It goes on to say, For this reason man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Flesh is carried on, is maintained, is upheld through the procreation of man and woman. After the fall and the curse, Adam names his wife Eve, which means life, because she would be the mother of of all the living. In response to the curse, which means death, the promise of life is carried on through the procreation of flesh. So it's not a bad thing here. It's a, that's a good thing. What's wrong is confidence in the flesh. It's through the one flesh union that life will continue to prevail on the earth. But after sin enters the world, part of that curse is that access to the tree of life is removed so that sinful humanity could not perpetually go on tainting the world indefinitely and eternally. The ultimate act of defiance against God is confidence in the flesh as opposed to confidence in God for eternal life, to achieve life, to achieve greatness and glory and mortality. It's the Tower of Babel, the story where Mankind clustered together and united in defiance against God. And they said, we'll build a city. And by our own human achievement and technological advancement, we'll build for ourselves the ability to have confidence in human flesh itself. We'll overcome the fall. We'll overcome the curse. We'll build a stairway that goes all the way to the heavens and achieve divinity on our own terms. And through human achievement and might, we will be like God. We'll make a name for ourselves. Confidence in the flesh. From here, confidence in the flesh is about human glory. Survival of the fittest. It is elitism. Because it begins to take the form of human might and achievement, of procreation and sex, of military achievement and empires, of racial and social class elitism vying for, vying for superiority over and above one another. This is all the outworking of the flesh. We are going to build ourselves into immortality through our own greatness. It's survival of the fittest. 
And therefore, it's suicidal. It destroys itself because of its elitism, its sexism, its fascism, its uh, racism, and so on, that occurs as a result of confidence in the flesh. It's suicidal. It tries to promote the flesh and achieve immortality, and it actually destroys itself. And out of our own insecurity and the knowledge that we are finite and weak and mortal, we keep trying to compensate for that by promoting ourselves, promoting our resume, promoting our achievement, putting our confidence in the flesh. That's what it means, confidence in the flesh. The ultimate anti-Babel symbol, therefore, would be circumcision. If the guarantor of life was human reproductivity, and by the way, all of these other cultures, Rome, Greece, Babylon, Egypt, they all idolize in their temples statues of male and female reproductive organs, and that was a symbol of human power and the flesh. To carry on life, through the symbol of that which gives life. And the gods are there to serve us and help us achieve that goal. Or by serving them, we bribe them into achieving that goal. The ultimate sign then of becoming a people who do not place their confidence in the flesh, but rather in God himself, not human reproductivity, was a physical sign of casting off a part of that very reproductive organ. It's a way of saying we define ourselves by the symbol as a people whose greatness isn't measured by our procreativity or our own human might and achievement. Greatness, therefore, when we get our own greatness out of the way, God's greatness can work through us as a people dedicated to his own purposes and his will. That's one reason why nakedness is kind of shameful in the Old Testament. They're told not to build an altar with stairway up to it so that your nakedness wouldn't be exposed on it. It's not because human body parts are shameful or gross or evil. It's because other temples had naked people running around doing all kinds of things because that was where they put their confidence for life and longevity and human might and power. And God is saying, we'll have none of that. Your confidence is to be in me instead. So when Paul infers that the Judaizers, the people of the circumcision, have placed confidence in the flesh, it is an ultimate insult. And it's totally true because the Jews had turned that very sign into a symbol of their own exclusive elitism. Circumcision had, become, had come to represent the very opposite of its original intended meaning. We are the elite ones, they're the dogs. And Paul would be inferring, as the prophets did, you're just like Babel. You've become Babylon. You've become Egypt. And those terms are always, again and again, used all the way through the book of Revelation even to talk about the kingdoms of this world who root their power and might and confidence in human flesh. The great prostitute Babylon and Egypt and so on. They emerge again in the story. For Paul, even religion, good works of the law, and a pedigree as one of God's chosen people had become a source of confidence in the flesh. The way 
to gain a name, it's a way to gain life. But because the flesh is self-destructive through its exclusive elitism, it cannot actually obtain life. We always end up saying, because of my goodness, I'm better than them. Because of my good works, I'm better than those non-Christians, than those non-Jews, than those non-Muslims. When we root our confidence in our own righteousness and our own works, that's the result. Self-destructive to the flesh. So how does God solve this? God must put an end to the flesh in that sense in order for life to prevail. So if we can put off the flesh and instead place our confidence in the one who is raised from death, then perhaps being emptied of ourselves, we open the doorway for God to give us life as he gave it to Christ through his power, not our power. That's why Paul says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might experience eternal life, be raised back from death, not through the flesh, but through Christ. Now, I don't have to break down the resume that he gives and why it's so important, but here's a few bullet points. Circumcised on the eighth day. He's saying, I wasn't a convert to Judaism. I was one of the originals. Born into the family of God by blood. Which is higher than these Gentiles would be. They would only be secondary Jews. Circumcised later. To the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was Israel, Jacob's favored son of Rachel. The only son to actually be born in the promised land. The only tribe that maintained loyalty to Judah when all the others deserted the monarchy. The tribe who inherited the city of Jerusalem. Paul's Hebrew name, Saul, probably reflects the pride that his parents had that the first Hebrew king, Saul, was a Benjaminite. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I'm not a Hellenized Jew. I'm not one of those Jews who rejected their own culture and way of life and language to go and assimilate with outside cultures, being a Jew only in name and, and appearance. No, no. I am Jewish to the core, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, the most strictly religious, expertly applying the law to every part of human life, as to zeal, one who fiercely protects the identity and way of life of his people and of God and his law by persecuting dangerous intrusions from outsiders like these new formed Christians. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul has the perfect pedigree. If in the flesh we're trying to find elitism, extreme uh, proficiency, blessedness in our own family, our own upbringing, our own belonging, our own race, the chosen ones. He has the right pedigree. And he has the perfect resume. He even says, if anyone thinks they can match this, I'm telling you, they can't. He could go somewhere. He could be someone. But he counts it all as loss because he's trading up. Trading up. Notice the words gains, profit, loss, surpassing worth. This is like investment language, finance language. It's what's more valuable on the scales here. Paul has this incredible resume, lots 
of profit and gain, but it has all been surpassed by something greater. He says that something is to know Christ, to gain Christ, and to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is found through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What is righteousness? Usually when we think of righteousness, we think it's someone who's being good, good works, being a good person, being religious. Right? We think of, of righteousness as, it's kind of a negative term nowadays because we think of people who are self-righteous, all about their own goodness and righteousness. But in context, I want to challenge you to see that it's a lot more than that. Our righteousness is that resume that we're trying to build. It's our confidence. We might think our righteousness doesn't matter to us very much, but do you ever get defensive I got defensive this week. It's that question, how do I know I'm okay? How do I know I'm good enough? How do I know that I'm acceptable? I've been doing some house projects around the house, and I've been, uh, first time doing anything kind of like this for me. I've been building this bench. It's a dining room bench, a built-in bench with storage in it. Eventually, it'll have a drawer. I have no idea how to do that yet, but I'll figure it out because there's YouTube. Um, it's, it's looking really good. And I went along and I caulked this bench so that it would look even better. But we'd primed it. We hadn't painted it yet. So my wife calls me and she says, uh, the paint's not sticking to the caulking. And I'm, all of a sudden I got like, oh no. And I've always caulked houses before when I worked in construction. And you can paint over it. And I went and looked at every half full leftover tube of caulking I had in my garage. And it all says paintable except the one that I used. And my wife says, you didn't read the directions. And because my confidence was rooted in my ability to proficiently make a really, really nice bench, I got really defensive. It wasn't my fault. Why should I read the directions? It's always supposed to be paintable. You know, I, what do we root our confidence in? It's, it became like a personal attack to me. Because I wanted to be found good enough. I wanted her to think I was really good at something and to, to uphold me and to congratulate me and to say, wow, what a great husband. <laughs> so I screwed up. You ever get defensive? It's your righteousness. It's your confidence in your own righteousness. How do I know I'm okay? How do I know I'm enough? How do I know that I'm acceptable and will get in? There are a lot of Christians out there today who believe that being a Christian is mainly about being good or morally righteous. Sure, you get grace, you know, we kind of understand what that means, but God has expectations. If you don't match up, he's going to drop you somehow. So we keep building our credibility on our portfolio, in our resume. But notice, Paul says he has found the surpassing worth of knowing Christ not by repenting of his sins, but by repenting of his righteousness. Christianity definitely includes repentance and forgiveness for sins. But Paul 
He was good at that. He was an expert at that. He knew all about that under the law, because the law includes that. Paul says that if you want to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, you have to drop your confidence in your righteousness. You have to repent of your righteousness, not just your sins. Now, some would object and they say, okay, so you go and you accept God's grace and then you just live however you want? Well, no and yes. No, because if you pick up the old ways of the flesh, you're just rooting yourself back in and exchanging, and you're exchanging that surpassing worth of Christ's life for a self-destructive lifestyle. And yes, because if you've really found his worth to be surpassing, then what you actually want is to please God. In that sense, then, you will live according to your wants and fulfill his law. Serving God by his spirit, not the law, and boasting in Christ Jesus, not your confidence in the flesh or your good works. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, wrote about it in a book called The Sickness Unto Death, which is crazy hard to understand, but it was really good. He talks about three lives. There's the aesthetic life, the moral life, and the life before the cross of Jesus. The aesthetic life is a life that says, I can find life through the flesh, through whatever feels good, through my own achievements and power and glory and goodness. I live however I want. I do whatever I want. And that's what I live for. He says you have to despair of this life. Despair, he defines as the sickness unto death. Because despair ultimately destroys people. But he says you have to embrace that sickness. You have to repent of that aesthetic life that lives for pleasure and for confidence in the flesh. But then he says there's the moral life. The moral life says, okay, having despaired of the aesthetic life, I'm going to try and repair myself through good works by being a good person. I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to start um, doing good and I'm going to feel better about myself. But, but he says you have to despair of that life too because it's rooted in the flesh. It only builds superiority and pride and elitism. You have to embrace the sickness unto death. And it's only when you despair of your own morality and your own sin that you truly come before the cross of Jesus Christ and you see presented on that cross a picture of what we really are. What our confidence and our goodness amounts to. Nailing an innocent man to a cross. Our sin resulting in death. Our confidence resulting only in self-destruction. And it's only when we despair and take up our own cross that we find real life. That we find his life through us. Through Christ in us, I should say. What do you take pride in? What do you get defensive about? It really comes down to this. Whose resume is better? Whose resume has more worth? Jesus's or yours? 
whose achievements are greater. Jesus was even a carpenter. My building skills don't even measure up to his. Kind of a joke, but... Um, whose resume is better? Paul's saying no one could compete with mine, but next to Christ's, garbage. Paul's saying even though I was born into the most elite position one could ever hope for, I don't match up with the Son of God who came from heaven. Paul's saying even though I was blameless according to the law, Persecuting Christians, it occurred to me, despair. I was persecuting God's own people. I was not able to truly love God for love's sake. I was not able to avoid the results of Babel and the flesh. Next to Christ's resume, my own is trash. He's not impressed with our resumes because Christ's resume is just that much better, infinitely better. But this is the offer. He says, let's trade. I'll give you mine and I'll take yours. And that's what happens on the cross. He says, I'll take your self-destructiveness. I'll take your incomplete good works that aren't good enough. I'll take everything you root your confidence in. I'll even take your sin on myself and I'll bear out the full weight and consequences of every human society rooting its confidence in the flesh upon myself so that you can have my badge, my resume. We get his medals. We get his honor. So that when we die with Christ and put our faith in Christ, we rise with him, a new creation. And God can now take and transform into the image of his own son. We get a treasure that is far greater, the sun obliterating the stars. Because everything we're trying to achieve is now given freely and excessively more to us as a gift. By grace. So what do you get defensive about? How hard are you trying to achieve it? Repent of your righteousness. Repent of our sin, yes, but repent of our righteousness. And our self-made name. Because that's not how God finds us acceptable. He finds his son acceptable. And he offers us his son he offers us a trade purely because he loves us. We don't deserve that love. But he loves us anyway. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd show us the places where we root our confidence in the flesh. Human achievement. Strength, nobility, righteousness. These are not bad things. But if this is where we go to find our confidence and our righteousness, then we realize, God, that we simply 
discredit the cross of Christ. And we hold up our resumes next to yours and we try to compete. Your gift of grace is a gift. So God, for anyone here who has been trying to earn that, trying to please you simply by way of our own goodness, upholding a confidence in our flesh and our righteousness of our own, show us how that life is destructive. Help us to repent and to receive the merits and the status and the surpassing worth of your Son. Give us rest. Give us rest from our strivings and relief from the always wondering if we're enough. Because now in Christ, because he was enough, we'll never have to ask that question again. You will never have to ask that question again. That is way more valuable. So reveal to us where we put our confidence in the flesh, in our righteousness, in our pedigree, in our morality, and help us to repent and then serve you with joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.